ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد تريدن وبيجن with the narration of Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu Al-Imam Al-Bukhari says Qala haddathana Ibrahim ibn al-Munzir Qala haddathani Muhammad ibn Fulayh Qala haddathani Abi Qala haddathani Hilal An Ata ibn Yasar An Abi Hurairata An al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallama Qala Man amana billahi wa rasulih وأقام الصلاة وصام رمضان كان حقا على الله أن يدخله الجنة هاجر في سبيل الله أو جلس في أرضه التي ولد فيها قالوا يا رسول الله أفلا ننبئ الناس بذلك قال إن في الجنة مئة درجة أعدها الله للمجاهدين في سبيله كل درجتين ما بينهما كما بين السماء والأرض فإذا سألتم الله فسألوه الفردوس فإنه أوسط الجنة وأعلى الجنة وفوقه عرش الرحمن ومنه تفجر أنهار الجنة Who has another copy of Bukhari besides this red one of Shaykh Al-Thaymeen? Right now nobody else using any other copy? Arabic, Arabic. Get another copy then, have a look. Have a look, yeah. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Who wants to read then before we go into this one today? It's been a while. You have the AC on, nice and cool. Who wants to go? Go on. قال البخاري رحمه الله حدثنا إبراهيم بن المنذر قال حدثني محمد بن فليح قال حدثني أبي قال حدثني هلال عن عطاء بن يسار عن أبي هريرة رضي الله عنه عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال من آمن بالله ورسوله وأقام الصلاة وصام رمضان كان حقا على الله أن يدخله الجنة هاجر في سبيل الله أو جلس في أرضه التي ولد فيها قالوا يا رسول الله أفلا ننبئ الناس بذلك قال إن في الجنة مئة درجة أعدها الله للمجاهدين في سبيله كل درجتين ما بينهما كما بين السماء والأرض فإذا سألتم الله فسلوه الفردوس فإنه أوسط الجنة وأعلى الجنة وفوقه عرش الرحمن who else? 
قال البخاري رحمه الله حدثنا ابراهيم المنذر قال حدثني محمد بن فليح قال حدثني ابي قال حدثني هلال عن عطاء بن يسار عن ابي هريره عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال من امن بالله ورسوله واقام الصلاه وصام رمضان كان حقا على الله ان يدخله الجنه هاجر في سبيل الله او جلس في ارضه التي ولد فيها قال يا رسول الله أفلا, أفلا ننبئ الناس بذلك قال إن في الجنة مئة درجة أعدها الله للمجاهدين في سبيله كل درجتين ما بينهما كما بين السماء والأرض فإذا سألتم الله فسلوه الفردوس فإنه أوسط الجنة وأعلى الجنة وفوقه عرش الرحمن ومنه تفجر أنهار الجنة Anyone from Liverpool want to represent? You have a copy? Students, where's the students? Students there. So in this narration then, the narration of Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu anin nabiyya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam qal that man amana billahi wa rasulih whomsoever believes in Allah and his messenger has iman in Allah and his messenger wa aqama salah and he establishes the prayer وَصَامَ رَمَضَانَ And he fasts Ramadan. كَانَ حَقًّا عَلَى اللَّهِ أَنْ يُدْخِلَهُ الْجَنَّةِ Then it is a virtue of the right upon Allah, meaning Allah has a virtue upon him, has given him that right that he will enter him into paradise. هاجر في سبيل الله أو جلس في أرضه التي ولد فيها whether that person has made hijrah in the path of Allah or remains in the land he was born in so note the opening part of the narration whomsoever believes in Allah and his messenger and establishes the prayer and fasts Ramadan then it is a right upon Allah that he will enter that person into paradise whether that person made hijrah in the path of Allah 
or remained in the land he was born in. They said, O Messenger of Allah, shall we not go and inform the people about that? Shall we not go and give them the glad tidings about that? The Prophet said, إن في الجنة مئة درجة أعدها الله للمجاهدين في سبيله In paradise there are a hundred levels that Allah has prepared for the mujahideen in his path كل درجتين ما بينهما كما بين السماء والأرض A hundred levels and between each of the levels one to two, two to three between each of the levels is that gap like the gap between the heavens and the earth so when you ask Allah when you make dua make dua for firdaus for it is the center of Jannah and the, the higher section of Jannah. وَفَوْقَهُ عَرْشُ الرَّحْمَانِ And above that is the throne of Allah. وَمِنْهُ تَفَجَّرُ أَنْهَارُ الْجَنَّةِ And from that the rivers of paradise gush forth. This narration then, what is the shahid as we spoke about before? What is the purpose, the point of this particular narration in this particular section of Kitab al-Tawheed in Sahih al-Bukhari? The point al-Imam al-Bukhari wants to highlight from this narration is what point? Regarding the throne of Allah being above Firdaus, being above the highest part of paradise. وَفَوْقَهُ عَرْشُ الرَّحْمَانِ That above all of that, above everything, is the throne of Allah, the ceiling of creation. And then above that, above all of that, including the throne, is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is the reason why this narration has been mentioned here as another proof regarding the throne of Allah uh, being above the rest of creation, the ceiling of creation. And then we know that Allah is above even that, the Most High. What are the benefits we can learn from this narration generally though? Benefit number one, in the hadith you will have noticed that it said whomsoever believes in Allah and his messenger and establishes the prayer and fasts Ramadan then Allah will enter him into paradise there is no mentioning of zakat or hajj how come zakat and how come hajj are not mentioned here Mm-hmm. Possibly. 
Because when it comes to belief in Allah and the Messenger, that is an absolute must upon everyone. When it comes to establishing the prayer, absolute must upon everyone. When it comes to fasting, it's a must upon everyone, but there may be exceptions given to it. When it comes to zakat and hajj though, then it is only an obligation if certain conditions are met. Zakat is only an obligation if you have the nisab, if you have the relevant amount of money for the relevant amount of time. Hajj is only an obligation if you have the strength and health and ability and wealth. So those possibly you could say that is the reason. But in any case, the scholars they say very clearly, when you see these types of narrations and not all five pillars of Islam are mentioned, it is not uh, to excuse or to exclude those other pillars. Quite clearly we know the narration Bunyal Islam ala khams. Islam is built upon five pillars. So all of the others, even if not mentioned, are very clearly intended and meant within that for the one who has the ability to perform them too. Another point you could mention is a person who does not perform or does not implement the belief in Allah and the Messenger, then that is kufr. A person who does not pray, again that is according to many of the scholars, kufr. A person who does not give the zakat, refuses to pay the zakat, according to some scholars, that is kufr. But the majority of them say that wouldn't be kufr. But the one who doesn't perform hajj, what about the one who doesn't perform hajj? The rulings differ slightly. There is really the shahadatain and the prayer that are the key. Those two clearly the scholars have mentioned regarding the kufr of the one who abandons those two. Fasting not in the same way, zakat not necessarily in the same way, hajj not necessarily in the same way. But often you get them mentioned together, the fasting and the prayer, because the prayer is the greatest physical worship, and the fasting, the fasting is what? The fasting is mentioned from its virtues as being from the worship that Allah has specified for Himself. Allah has specified that fasting to Himself and He rewards the person upon it. So there are various different perspectives to look at that, why certain pillars are mentioned, why others are not. What we know though, Buni al-Islam ala khams, Islam is built upon five, so certainly all of them are intended and it is not the case that any of them are excluded. Then from the benefits also was that point regarding a person whether he makes hijrah or does not. If you don't make hijrah, meaning you are living in the land of kufr, 
Is it permissible to do that? Is it permissible to live in the land of Kufr? In the land of the non-Muslims? Is it permissible to live there? Yes? If you are able to fulfill your religion and openly practice your religion, then the obligation is not an obligation as such. Whereas if you were not able to openly practice your religion, it is an obligation to try and move to a land of the Muslims where you can openly practice your religion. So the issue revolves around the ability to practice your religion, the ability to perform and to fulfill the rights of your religion and your worship to Allah. If you're living in the land of Kufr somewhere where you can do all of that, then you have some leeway in the affair. Even then, of course, the scholars, they advise, safeguard yourself and move if you can to the land of the Muslims. But there is leeway in that instance. In the instance where you're living in the land of Kufr and are unable to fulfill and to practice the rights of your religion, then it is an obligation for you to make the attempt to move to a land where you can openly practice your religion without being persecuted. So that is the difference here. And that's what it means even if a person does not make the hijrah, meaning if you're living in the land of kufr but are able to fully practice and perform your religion. As Shaykh al he mentions it here, أن الإنسان إذا كان في بلد كافر وقدر على أن يقوم بدينه فإنه لا تجب عليه الهجرة لكن إذا لم يقدر على إظهار دينه وجب عليه أن يهاجر وهذا هو صحيح أن الهجرة باقية إلى أن تقوم الساعة that the hijra it is something which remains hijra is something which is implementable, practicable all the way up until the day of judgment and that is mentioned in the hadith لَا تَنْقَطِعُ الْهِجْرَةِ حَتَّى تَنْقَطِعُ التَّوْبَةِ وَلَا تَنْقَطِعُ التَّوْبَةِ حَتَّى تَطْلُعَ الشَّمْسُ مِنْ مَغْرِبِهَا that hijrah does not cut off hijrah doesn't come to an end until tawbah comes to an end until your opportunity for seeking repentance comes to an end. And when does that come to an end? That does not come to an end until the sun rises from the west. So the hijrah is established and performable all the way up until then. It is a mistake, the Shaykh says, that some of these scholars mentioned, إِنَّ الْهِجْرَ انْقَطَعَتْ بِفَتْحِ مَكَّةِ That the hijrah it finished. There is no more hijrah to be done after the conquering of Mecca. لا هجرة بعد الفتح That there is no hijrah after the conquering of Mecca. But as the scholars have said, that is in reference to Mecca itself. That once Mecca became a land of Islam, there is no more hijrah exiting from Mecca. So the overall hijrah from the land of Kufr to the land of Islam is established.
Also from the benefits of this narration, it mentioned that paradise has how many levels? A hundred. So does paradise have exactly one hundred levels within it? So it is not only a hundred levels, in fact there are other narrations that mention many more. But then how do we understand this narration that says there are a hundred levels? Because it is in the sentence connected to a particular point. A hundred levels for the sincere mujahideen in the path of Allah. As for the other levels besides that, many more too. But for the mujahideen there are a hundred levels. So it is specific to a particular point. As for the general, the general meaning of the levels of paradise, then beyond that, beyond the hundred and not restricted to the hundred. And that is almost identical to something we've discussed many times regarding the names and attributes of Allah. That indeed Allah has 99 names. Whomsoever learns, memorizes, acts upon them will enter paradise. So does Allah have only 99 names? No, it is something very specific being mentioned. 99 names in terms of you memorizing, acting, learning, benefiting, knowing 99 of the names of Allah, then you enter paradise. How many does Allah have altogether beyond that? It is not restricted to that. So paradise is not restricted to a hundred levels, but here in this narration it is being mentioned as a hundred for a specific reasoning, the reasoning of the Mujahideen. And as another side point, the scholars they say as a benefit, paradise obviously goes up in levels, paradise goes up in levels, and there are narrations about the people being moved up in levels. Uh, when it comes to the narrations about the Shafa'ah on the Day of Judgment, it is mentioned there are some narrations about Shafa'ah being done for certain believers to be elevated in the levels of Paradise. There is the narration regarding uh, a man who will be elevated and he will say, My Lord, what have I done to deserve this elevation to be raised up into the higher levels of Paradise? And it will be said to him because of the dua that your child made for you after you. The dua of your righteous children. That dua benefited you and you are being raised in the levels of paradise for it. So the paradise goes up in levels. Higher levels. Whereas hellfire, does it have levels too? Hellfire has levels too. This is technically a trick question. Huh? Okay, we're getting closer. It has degrees of punishment. The hypocrites will be in the lowest depths. The scholars, they say, as a small benefit, paradise goes up in levels. Hellfire goes down in 
pits and depths. It is not levels going up, it is pits going down. One pit lower than the next pit, than the next pit. And that's why it says regarding the uh, munafiqoon, إِنَّ الْمُنَافِقِينَ فِي الدَّرْكِ الْأَسْفَلِ مِنَ النَّارِ that the hypocrites will be in the lowest pit of the hellfire. So paradise goes up in levels. Hellfire goes down in pits. One pit and another pit going down and deeper and more depths of that hellfire. Similarly, from the benefits we can take from this narration is that it tells you in it, فَإِذَا سَأَلْتُمُ اللَّهِ فَسَلُوهُ الْفِرْدَوْسِ That if you make dua, when you make dua, then ask Allah for firdaus, the highest of paradise. Make dua for the maximum, for firdaus. Do not belittle yourself. Do not think there's no possibility for me in firdaus. And you make du'a just for the, the lower levels. You don't make du'a in that way. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has everything in His control. Can answer the du'a of whomsoever, of whatsoever. So when you make du'a, you make du'a with a firm, resolute mindset. That is mentioned in Kitab al-Tawheed. One of the chapters regarding du'a. When you make dua, you make it with a firm, resolute mindset. Firm, resolute mindset meaning, when you make dua, as the scholars have mentioned, you don't say, Insha'Allah. You don't say, Allah give me this goodness or that goodness, whatever goodness you're making dua for, Insha'Allah. Because that then indicates from you a lack of certainty in your affair. That no, inshallah give me this or inshallah give me that. Maybe, maybe. That is not the way you make dua. When you make dua, you make it with a firm, resolute certainty of mind. That Allah has everything in His control and Allah can answer your dua without any restriction, any weakness, anything uh, deteriorating. As we know in the narration, لَوْ أَنَّ أَوَّلَكُمْ وَآخِرَكُمْ وَإِنْسَكُمْ وَجِنَّكُمْ قَامُوا عَلَى سَعِيدٍ وَاحِدٍ فَسَأَلَ كُلُّ وَاحِدٍ عَنْ مَسْأَلَتِهِ If all of you, the beginning to the end, the jinn and the humans were stood upon a plain of land and every single person, every single jinn asked for their dua what they want. And if Allah was to answer every single one of them, مَا نَقَصَ ذَلِكَ مِمَّا عِنْدِي إِلَّا كَمَا يَنْقُصُ الْمِخِيطُ إِذَا أُدْخِلَ الْبَحَرِ that it would not decrease from the kingdom of Allah whatsoever. Except how a needle, when it is dipped into the ocean, decreases the water of the ocean. Meaning when you get a needle, you dip it into the sea, into the ocean. That drop that falls off the needle, what have you done to the water levels of the ocean? Nothing whatsoever. So it does not decrease the kingdom of Allah whatsoever. So when you make dua, you make it with certainty of mind. That Allah can answer your du'a, will answer your du'a. So you make it with that resolute mind, not half-heartedly. You do not make du'a half-heartedly. When you make du'a, make it with certainty. 
So here it tells you, when you make dua for paradise, ask Allah for Firdaus. Ask Allah for the highest level of paradise. And of course, take the necessary means yourself. Drop your sins and drop your shortcomings. Drop your deficiencies and your wrongdoings. Perform the actions of worship and obedience. Perform the obligatory, of course. And then the mustahab on top. And then even drop the mubah that bring you nothing. They are the levels of the muhsineen and the mu'mineen. So a person strives to the best of his ability and with resoluteness makes dua asking Allah for firdaus. That is the manner in which a believer should be when it comes to dua. If you are not in that way and you have a half-hearted attitude when you're making dua, that is actually a deficiency in your tawheed. That's why this particular narration about dua is mentioned in Kitab al-Tawheed by a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. He mentions it there, that if you make dua half-heartedly, it indicates a deficiency in your tawheed. Because it indicates that you don't seem to recognize the might and the majesty of Allah. That you don't seem to fully appreciate that Allah has control of everything, can answer your dua, will answer your dua for the highest affair. It seems to be as though you have some deficiency in your understanding of those affairs. And that therefore is the deficiency in your tawheed. If you are making dua in a half-hearted manner, so you strive and you make dua with that resolute mindset asking for firdaus. Some of the other issues that Sheikh Al-Ithaymeen mentions here. He says, Mas'ala Al-Imam Malik Lama qala lilladhi sa'alahu an kayfiyyat al-istiwa wa ajabahu an thalika wa ka'annahu shatamahu faqal inna al-fi'l bid'i فهل يجوز أن نقول للشخص المبتدع أنت مبتدع He says in that famous story when Imam Malik was teaching and a man walked in Imam Malik was teaching about al-istiwa of Allah rising above the throne Allah being the most high and a man came in walked into the class and he said how does Allah rise above the throne? And incidentally, there is a book written by a Sheikh Abdul Razak Al-Abbad on that topic, just that story. A book of maybe 100 pages, 50, 100, 200 pages, just on that topic, that story. What happened, how it happened, all the various narrations, the riwayat, the benefits, what you can take out of it, what you can understand from it. Very nice, 100 or so pages, a small book. Just on that story of Imam Malik when the man came in and said, Kayf istawa. Very beneficial. So in that story, the man came in and asked Imam Malik, How? How does Allah go above the throne? Imam Malik, we know the famous response he gave to him, the response which is the principle to all of the names and attributes then. 
He said, Al-Istiwa Ma'lum. He said, As for Al-Istiwa of Allah rising above the throne, that is something known to us. Then he said, Wal-Kayfu Majhul. How Allah does that is unknown to us. Wa Al-Imanu Bihi Wajib. But believing in it, affirming it, accepting it is obligatory upon you. And As-Su'alu Anhu Bid'ah. Asking questions about it. But how Allah this and how Allah that is an innovation. And that applies to all of the attributes. We know the basic meaning of them. We don't know the howness of them. We have iman in them. And we don't start asking questions and delving into those affairs of how Allah this and how Allah that. That's why the scholars, they say there are two questions that you don't ask. In regards to the decree, when it comes to the decree of Allah, what Allah decrees to happen, there is one question you don't ask when it comes to the decree of Allah. And that is, why? Why did Allah decree this for me? Why did it have to happen like that? You don't ask why when it comes to the decree of Allah. And when it comes to the names and attributes of Allah, you don't ask how. So you don't ask why when it comes to the decree, and you don't ask how when it comes to the attributes of Allah. Because like we said, if you start delving into that, you are delving into something the Salaf never went into. And you will go into the ways of the philosophers and become misguided. Just like the philosophers and their likes, they come along and they say to you, so Allah descends to the lowest heaven in the last third of the night. True. True. They say across the world, there is always somewhere where it is the last third of the night happening. Right now, the last third of the night is happening somewhere to the east of us. Somewhere to the east of us, the last third of the night is already happening. True. So somewhere in Eastern Europe, somewhere down that side, beyond, beyond Eastern Europe, in fact, going into Asia, somewhere down there right now it will be the last third of the night. Later on, in a few hours, it will be the last third of the night for us. But in between that, the last third of the night will be moving across until it gets to us and then it will carry on. There will always be a last third of the night somewhere in the world. True? True, that's true. That's not a trick question. There will always be a last third of the night somewhere in the world. Always. So then the philosophers, they say, in that case, if there is always a last third of the night somewhere, and there is, then is Allah always descending? And does that mean, therefore, the throne is empty because Allah is always descending? Those types of affairs, they began talking about them and they went astray. Who has told you, who from the Salaf ever talked and mentioned these things? That there are different time zones, there is always a last third of the night, so therefore, is Allah always descending? And so if Allah is always descending, then is the throne therefore empty? All of these types of things, they started opening up and they were 
led astray. We have not been taught to delve into affairs that Allah has not informed us of. Regarding the affairs of the angels and of the aqidah as a whole, you've not been given from the knowledge except a small amount. So you do not delve into those affairs. So here the point being, Al-Imam Malik, he said basically to that man, basically that I view you to be a Mubtadi'ah. This statement of yours, you've come in saying it, that is the way of a Mubtadi'ah. I see you to be a Mubtadi'ah basically. So the Shaykh says, is it permissible for us to therefore declare a person like that Mubtadi'ah? He says, Al-Imam Malik lam yajzim bithalik, lakin qal ma uraak illa mubtadi'an. Falam yajzim. Firstly, Al-Imam Malik in that narration didn't say, you are an innovator. It wasn't like that. It was more like, I view you, I consider you, upon what you've just said and your statements you've made, to be an innovator. Meaning, it appears... It appears from your statements and your speech and what you said that you are nothing other than an innovator. So it was not a definitive ruling made there and then you are an innovator. It was more like it appears from your statements, you're upon the lines of the innovators. That I don't consider you except that you are from the people of innovation. وَلَا بَأْسْ أَنْ تَقُولَ لِلشَّخْصِ الْمُبْتَدِعْ أَظُنُّ هَذَا مُبْتَدِعًا أَوْ تَقُولُ لَهُ أَظُنُّكَ مُبْتَدِعًا لِأَنَّ الظَّنِ غَيْرُ الشَّهَادَةِ أَوْ الْحُكْمِ الْيَقِينِ So it is permissible to declare a person in that same way, to declare a person upon his affairs, upon his situation, his circumstances, his statements, his actions, that you say, I consider that person to be an innovator. Consider that person to be a mubtadi'ah. But the point the Shaykh is making is you don't go out start making a ruling just like that. He is a mubtadi'ah. And that one is a mubtadi'ah. It requires knowledge, requires understanding before you can declare a person to be a mubtadi'ah. And that is really the point the Shaykh wants to make there. It's not something you just go around declaring a ruling upon people. He's mubtadi'ah, he's mubtadi'ah, he's mubtadi'ah. Rather it requires some understanding of the affair even more than that, a level higher, to declare people kafir. You cannot just go around, this one kafir, that one kafir, this one he's done this, therefore he's a kafir, that one he's done that, therefore he's a kafir. If you study Nawaqadul Islam, the nullifiers of Islam, that issue of takfir is detailed to a degree, giving the basic principles of takfir, and why you cannot just declare people he's kafir, he's kafir. They give the example, the famous example. Just because you see somebody committing kufr, does it mean he's a kafir? It doesn't. Just because you see somebody committing kufr, it doesn't mean he's a kafir. You may think, how? Oh no, how can that be? If he's committing kufr, he's kafir. But they give you the example, that famous example they always mention often. They say you walk into a room and you see a Muslim, somebody you know is a Muslim or not that you know but you recognize from his appearance he is a Muslim you walk into the room and you see him prostrating he's on a prayer mat gives it away there 
He's on a prayer mat prostrating to an idol in front of him. He's got an idol put down there and he's praying, prostrating to the idol. Action of kufr or not? Action of kufr. Kafir. You can't declare the ruling just like that. Why not? He's got his prayer mat laid out. Idol, statue right in front, just 10 centimeters ahead of the prayer mat. Prostrating down to the idol. You can't declare the man to be kafir instantly just like that? Not just like that. Because then when you talk to him afterwards, and you say to him, what's going on? Prayer mat down, everything, you're praying to this idol. He says, what idol? I came into this prayer room, this multi-faith room. I came into this multi-faith room. I'm blind. I asked somebody leaving which way is the Qibla. They said that way. Pointed my hand and my body towards it. I put down my mat and I prayed. I had no idea up until now that there was an idol from this multi-faith room of the others right in front of me. So now is he a kafir? Absolutely not. So that's what they talk about in Tifa'ul Mawani' that you must remove preventative factors. A person may have some doubts or interpretations or understandings that are confusing him. So intifa'ul mawani' meaning that you must then uh, you must remove you must huh? remove those obstacles those doubts you must eliminate eliminate those doubts and the uh, the confusions and the interpretations and you must explain to them and establish the evidence and part of that is that they understand that is part of it. Establishing the evidence upon somebody, one of the conditions or one of the parts of that is that they understand the evidence you've established upon them. You can't just say, I went there, I gave him the ayat, he wasn't accepting, khalas kafir. Not like that. Establishing the evidence, one of the points of it is that the person understands the evidence you're establishing. So you go and give him an ayah and you say to him, this is the ayah proving that such and such uh, is kufr. He says, I don't get it. The ayah, but it says this, it says that. I don't get it. How is that proving kufr? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not understanding. Now the evidence hasn't been established upon him yet. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. He doesn't understand why this is a proof. How it's a proof. He doesn't understand. To establish the evidence upon him, you've got to explain that to him. This ayah, it means this and this point and that point. And you've got to explain to him how this is a proof against what you're doing in the kufr or the shirk in the actions that you're performing. So there are points to be mentioned there. But the uh, issue here the Shaykh mentioned was regarding uh, declaring a person a mubtadi'ah. That yes, of course, there are mubtadi'ah. And of course, they are declared as mubtadi'ah. But a person needs to be careful with regards to that. And with regards to establishing a ruling like that upon people until you are somebody who has ability and understanding of the affairs otherwise it becomes chaotic everybody going around and declaring people to be mubtadi'ah that would not be the way and it's not the way of the salaf al-ilm qabla al-qawli wal-amal in everything knowledge comes before statements and actions in all affairs then after that we come to the next narration Uh, Imam al-Bukhari قال حدثنا يحيى ابن جعفر قال حدثنا أبو معاوية عن الأعمش عن إبراهيم هو التيمي عن أبيه 
عن ابي ذر قال دخلت المسجد ورسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم جالس in this narration abu dhar he says i entered the mosque and the messenger sallallahu was sitting down falamma gharabat ash-shams qal so when the sun went down the prophet sallallahu said to abu dhar ya abu dhar hal tadri ayna tadhhabu hadhi aw abu dhar do you know where it goes meaning the sun قال قلت الله ورسوله أعلم أبو ذر says I said Allah and his messenger know best and is that what you're supposed to say Allah ورسوله أعلم now you only say Allah أعلم why did they used to say Allah ورسوله أعلم because the revelation was still coming down now the revelation has finished so now it is just Allahu A'lam. So he said at that time, Allahu wa Rasuluhu A'lam. So then the Prophet ﷺ told him, قال فإنها تذهب تستأذن في السجود فيؤذن لها that it goes and seeks permission in prostration and so the permission is given to it. وكأنها قد قيل لها and it is as though it is said to it, ارجعي من حيث جئت, go back from where you came from, فتطلع من مغربها, so then it will rise up on that occasion from the west, ثم قرأ ذلك مستقر لها في قراءة عبد الله, so this is regarding the narration about the sun, how it goes under the the arsh, the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala seeks permission and then rises up from the normally east until the permission is not given and so on that day it returns and rises from the west. فَإِنَّهَا تَذْهَبُ تَسْتَأْذِنُ فِي السُّجُودِ فَيُؤْذَنُ لَهَا It goes and in prostration it seeks permission, the sun. Where is the shahid here though? The shahid the shaykh explains is in some of the other versions of the narration. فِي بَعْضَ الْرِوَايَاتِ تَسْجُدُ تَحْتَ الْعَرْشِ that the sun prostrates under the throne. Well, Bukhari lam yati biha fi hadha al-lafz, wa hadha min tasarrufatihi al-kathira, rahimahullah, annahu yati bil-hadith, wa in lam yujad bihi shahid, li-ajli an yartani, aw yartani, al-talibu bil-bahth, an al-lafz al-akhar, al-lazhi fihi dhikru ma yakunu shahidan lil-bab. He says here, Al-Imam Al-Bukhari didn't quote the version that actually mentions the throne. Even though that's actually the point in this chapter. He mentioned a version that doesn't specify the throne in the wording. One of the possible reasonings behind that is that Al-Imam Al-Bukhari purposely sometimes 
gives you the general narration, knowing that there are other versions that mention the Shahid, and he may not specifically choose those narrations with the clear wording of the Arsh in them, in order, as they say, to sharpen the minds of the students. So now you come to this narration, you read it, and you think, where is the Shahid? Nothing they're talking about the throne of Allah. So now it requires some sharpening of the mind for you to go and investigate and you realize there are various other versions of this hadith that do specifically mention the throne of Allah. And therefore the shahid is in the hadith in the various versions of it. أَحْيَانًا يَكُونُ الْحَدِيثِ قَدْ وَرَدَ, قد ورد فِي الصَّحِيحِ نَفْسِهِ وَكَأَنَّهُ يَقُولُ ارْجِعْ وَابْحَثْ فِي الصَّحِيحِ حَتَّى تَجِدَ اللَّفْظِ الَّذِي يَكُونُ شَاهِدًا Sometimes that version of the narration may have been quoted by Imam al-Bukhari in another chapter. So it's as though he's saying to you the hadith is here in the book. You can't find your exact word right now, then go and search in the book. The scholars do make that as a point. They say Al-Imam Al-Bukhari did what he did in his book, wrote or put together Sahih Al-Bukhari in a way that sharpens the minds of the student. They do mention that. So maybe that is one of the reasons. He has mentioned the other version somewhere in the book. In this occasion, he picks the other version. Leaving it to you to recognize and to sharpen your mind and to find the other version of the same hadith to realize the shahid. Sometimes it could be the case that the point of the narration, in this case the point about the throne of Allah is mentioned in some versions of this same hadith but those other versions are not at the level of authenticity upon the conditions of al-imam al-bukhari therefore he's not going to quote those versions in sahih al-bukhari but there is a version of those narrations that mention the throne there is a version upon his level that he wants but it doesn't have the exact word of throne in that version but okay it's upon his level of acceptability he'll quote that one then knowing that there are others which are authentic but not at the level of strength of authenticity that he made a condition for Sahih al-Bukhari. So therefore it's as though he quotes you the one that is of that level, fulfilling his condition, leaving it for the student of knowledge to then realize that there are other versions which are also authentic, but just not at the level of his condition of Bukhari, but those other also authentic versions mention the Arsh in this case, and therefore this narration is a proof for this chapter. Therefore it is a proof for this chapter, because there are authentic narrations that mention that. So, في هذا الحديث دليل واضح على أن الشمس هي التي تجري في الأفق 
In this narration is an absolutely clear evidence that the sun, it rotates and moves. And that the sun is not stationary as the focal point with all of the planets and everything else moving around it. People have a difficulty with that issue. People have a difficulty with that issue. And one of the reasons is because the agreed, inverted commas, the muttafaqun alayhi, inverted commas, of the scientific field, the science, the scientists, the generally agreed upon consensus of them is that it's stationary and that everything else revolves and rotates around it. So people have a difficulty because that's what you've been taught ever since you were a child. That's what you've seen in those baby science books with the pictures and everything. That's how it works. However, maybe the easiest way because most of the people who have that issue it's because of their academic ingrainment from that young age. Academically, that's the textbooks. That's how they've taught you. Academically, that's the scientists and that's what they've worked out. So the simplest way perhaps would be to say that even though it is the generally agreed upon idea amongst the scientists, amongst the scientists, there are those from the kuffar academic scientists there are those who say that the current model is an absolute nonsense and that the sun is the one that moves that sometimes makes it easier for people who are so deep into academics and science you tell them well in academics in science there are established opinions in that field that tell you the sun rotates and moves. There are established opinions. Yes, they may not be the, the accepted opinions as the norm amongst the scientists, but amongst them, those opinions, they exist. So now a person, because normally when a person has this problem, they have this problem and they think the scientists, the academics are saying one thing with their satellites and everything. But our religion is saying another. But when you tell them actually everything you're basing your opinion upon, your academics, your science and everything, those academics, those scientists, those people, those researchers, there are those amongst them who tell you that the sun moves too. So it is not just a case of the religion is opposing everything out there in science. No, it is not like that at all. Not that it matters. What the religion says, what the Quran says, what the Sunnah says is accepted regardless of whether there were kuffar scientists affirming it or not. But it's something that makes it easier for some of these people who are deeply involved in science and academics. You tell them there are established people in the science, scientific field, in that field of study, in their academic papers, in their research papers, in their university theses that have written about the sun being the movement, the moving body. So that is not something strange. It is something of an opinion established amongst them even. We know that it is the correct opinion. 
We know that is the correct opinion. That is the correct opinion from those opinions of those scientists. For us, there are no opinions. This is the fact. But according to the academics and the opinions they have, we know which of their opinions is the fact. And it is the one regarding the sun moving. So there are many other points with that. Always with this issue of the academics that confuses the people. Lots of topics they come into it. One of the other favorite ones, of course, is whether the earth is flat or round. So is the earth flat or is it round? You don't know if the earth is flat or round? Did you get any GCSEs? Ah. Is the earth flat or round? So what about regarding the earth flat and round? Is the earth flat or round? Nobody knows? Nobody knows if the earth is flat or round. Don't get political with things. <laughs> Give us a clear answer. Is it flat or is it round? It's round. The earth is round. It's not flat. So what about the ayat in the Quran that Allah made the mountains as pegs to hold it all down as an open plain? Majority of the scholars say what? They say it's round. The majority of the scholars, the Jumhur, are upon the fact or the opinion that the earth is round. Some people might find this amazing, but it's not proven either way in terms of their scientific evidences. But you have to look into those details. Some of the things you were taught in the books and the academics, it's not necessarily like that. Now in, med in medicine, for example, in medicine now, 20 years ago, they would have sworn on their lives as they do. Shirk anyway, but as they do. They would have sworn on their lives that this particular... Take an example of the plague. The plague when it occurred, the black, the bubonic plague. What was the cure they used to give the people? When was it? Who's good at history? Who remembers? 15 something, 16 something, four or five hundred years ago in the UK. When that bubonic plague happened. What was the cure that the, the scientists, the doctors, the cure? What did they used to tell everybody to do? This was their ultimate in research and analysis and medicine. They used to tell them, wrap up really warm, even though the bubonic plague gives you a burning fever. Your body's about to burn. But they say, no, wrap up even more. Make yourself sweat to the maximum. Wrap yourself next to the fire. Hot everything. Make yourself hot as you can. Sweat yourself out to get the virus to sweat out of you. Now, they'll tell you, with their research which has become clear that this course of action was the absolute killer in terms of making the plague spread even more. That sweat, that heat, 
the germs, everything spread even more. But in those days, in their textbooks, they would have told you, bubonic plague, the cure is to make yourself warm. And there's lots of things like that. A few years ago, they would swear on their lives that Pluto is a planet. Now all of a sudden, miskin Pluto, downgraded, no longer a planet. So everybody who didn't know that yet, who hadn't learned that Pluto is no longer a planet, whereas you were taught and you got your A in GCSE by saying on your paper that Pluto is a planet. What's happened? A planet and it's not a planet anymore. So don't come and tell us academics and research and scientists have proven X, Y, and Z. They have not proven it. And if you have any ability in academics, you'll know that the whole point of academics and the way they do it is, it is best, uh, what they call it, uh, best opinion research or something along these lines. That it is not 100%. It is the best conclusion upon all of their research and analysis and what they can see. This is the best conclusion from it all. So now they think the best conclusion from everything they can see is that the sun is stationary and we're moving around it. That's their best conclusion for now. It is not a definitive 100%. Their best conclusion on certain medicines right now is what they've got right now. In a hundred years, they'll have something better. So you can never start to think and start to behave in this way where you think science is fact. That it is absolute fact. It is not absolute fact. It is their best conclusions that they can draw from the factors that they've analyzed. And that's how it works. That is the way it works. So, those are issues that are deep and they take a long time to go into anyway. But the point here was regarding the sun. It is clear in this narration that the sun definitely moves and you cannot deny that in the narration it says the sun goes every night or goes as it disappears to the throne of Allah gets the permission then comes back and rises and then on that occasion doesn't get the permission and then comes back from the west the sun moves absolutely with the flat earth we were saying the majority of the scholars they say it is round but there are some scholars from the senior scholars who believe that it is flat. Uh, for example, Ibn al-Qayyim. Ibn al-Qayyim says absolutely the earth is flat. Absolutely. And he says it's a ridicule anybody claiming the earth is round. So you have those. But the majority of the scholars on that, that the earth is round. But those are some of those issues that you may need to look into further if you require detail. We'll conclude upon that point for today. We'll have to finish off the remainder of it next time. There is a bit more to go on this hadith. Uh, and then we'll move on to the narrations after that regarding the throne of Allah also. Next week, in fact, we should be able to finish. In fact, we will. Next week, we'll finish the topic regarding the throne of Allah and the evidences for the throne of Allah and Allah being above the creation. And then it goes on to talk about a sub-chapter regarding Allah being the Most High. We discussed briefly about the Aqeedah of Ahl Sunnah, that Allah is the Most High, Allah is not everywhere, Allah is not mixed in with creation. 
So that is going to be spoken about also. Uh, and then after that, like we said, it's the chapter regarding seeing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Any questions on that or anything else? Go on. But then there's a hundred scenarios, depending on when she menstruates. So how are you supposed to answer? So then we will give. Uh, generally, if a woman menstruates, what can she do? She can do. Everything apart from tawaf. That's the general broadest ruling. But then with the scenarios, it just depends on when it occurs, at what stage she was at. The answer will differ according to where it happens, at what point it happens at, and what she's, what she's doing at that stage, where she's at. It will just depend on when it occurs. Incidentally, not that the scholars advise it, but they do allow it. Some scholars do allow it. Not that they advise it, it's not mustahab as you would say, but some scholars do allow it. I believe a Shaykh al-Uthaymeen and others. These pills and things that delay the cycle for the women, scholars do allow it. It is permissible, but it's not something they recommend. It's not something a Shaykh al-Uthaymeen says it's permissible, but he doesn't recommend you do it. But if a woman wanted to, incidentally, just to mention, some scholars do allow it. If a woman wanted to try and make sure she doesn't get involved in that situation, so she wants to take these medicines and pills that delay the cycle, then some of the scholars, including a Shaykh al-Athameen, do allow it. It's permissible, but they don't recommend it for various reasons. Uh, not specifically uh, Islamic reasons, meaning more like biological reasons. As Shaykh al said, it could impact upon your uh, internal cycle and the way things run in the blood, etc. So medical types of reasons. But that's something just to mention incidentally also. But if the sister is going on Hajj, if anybody is going on Hajj, then you must properly study now in these next few weeks the issues of Hajj. And there are several books available in English too. There are some uh, in English, uh, there are CDs, meaning lectures and talks that have been done in the past. You must educate yourself regarding Hajj. Don't try and go do Hajj by reading a pamphlet. These pamphlets that are made, a small guide to Hajj, leaflets. Don't read a leaflet and say, okay, that's it, I'm done. Read something properly, listen to lectures, go to the seminars they have. Before you go to the seminar, you should read up and prepare read up and listen to lectures five ten lectures kitab al-hajj from bulugh al-maram we've done that before other lessons have been done you should prepare properly this is hajj you don't know if you're going to get another opportunity after that you don't know if there'll be another chance after that so prepare properly for this once this opportunity that has come to you so certainly a lot of preparation is required and really if the sister prepares properly and goes through lectures goes through studies and books a lot of these things will be answered inshallah
Anything else? All of the rulings upon people, it's not a straightforward declaration. Somebody's committing sins amongst the community now. There's factors to take into consideration. Maybe there's a brother from amongst your brothers, he's committing some sin. Factors must be taken into consideration. So, for example, the factors such as concealing that sin, advising him privately, so you wouldn't go around calling him a fasik amongst the community, for example. Could be somebody else committing some sin, but again, maybe you know there is an opportunity for advice. So you wouldn't just go and declare the person to be fasik. These uh, labels, names, and terms are not to be used by a person randomly for any individual here or there. He sees somebody committing a sin, khalas, the ruling is upon him. Such and such Muhammad, the son of such and such, is a fasiq. You can't just go around declaring rulings like that. A person needs to be upon knowledge, like we said. You need to have understanding. You need to have wisdom in what you're doing. So you can't just go around making rulings upon people. Must be upon knowledge, must be in light of the Quran and the Sunnah, must have an understanding of enjoying the good and forbidding the evil. You may see somebody committing what you know is an opposition to the Sunnah. But is that person actually opposing the Sunnah? Somebody may be doing something which is in opposition to the Sunnah, but is he opposing the Sunnah? Not necessarily. Shaykh al gives an example. You walk into the mosque and you see somebody praying the obligatory prayer sitting down. And you know he's a young, fit man. He was playing football with you every week. He's sitting down praying. After the prayer, you go to him, you start scolding him. What are you doing? Obligatory prayer. Rukan, you have to stand. You start enjoying the good, forbidding the evil, everything. And then he says to you, but look at my ankle. Last night when I played, that's what happened to me. I can't stand. So now you didn't see that before. So you thought he was committing some wrong and opposition to the sunnah because you had not established the scenario. Ibn Taymiyyah says you got to establish the scenario have an understanding before you enjoin the good and forbid the evil. Maybe somebody is doing something that is apparently in opposition to the sunnah because in his circumstance it is allowed Islamically for him to do it. His foot is broken, he can't put any weight on it, allowed for him to sit and pray the obligatory prayer. Even though normally that would be invalidation of your prayer. So you've got to establish what's going on. And that is one of the conditions of enjoining the good and forbidding the evil which is going to lead on to labeling people with terms. You've got to understand what's going on and what they've done in the scenario and does it dictate that this person is now a mubtadir, is he a fasiq, is he this, is he that? A person who doesn't have an understanding of those things, how are you going to be able to use those terms if you don't understand the processes and what is involved in the definitions of those terms? So it's not something suitable for a person to go around with these terms until you have some knowledge and understanding and you stay with the scholars in those affairs. Anything else or we conclude upon that? So, we leave it on that for today then. Next week, inshallah, as close as possible to 8 p.m. We'll carry on with the next session.
وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين